Hello and welcome to another edition of Global Business Alliance's monthly trade policy podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined this week by Brian Pomper and Cleet Wilms from Aiken Gump. Thank you both for being with us today. Thanks for having Thank you. I know we've got a lot of talked about. Um, we are going to be releasing this uh, this podcast the day after Memorial Day, and I know that uh, we have, have a trade policy call coming up with the Aiken Gump crew as well later on the same week, and we're going to use that call to talk about a lot of uh, general trade issues that are out there that, that we do on most of our calls. But meanwhile, for this podcast, we thought that we would take a moment to focus in on things that are happening in the Senate because we are in the middle of a big push, a big bill on the Senate floor focused on China. And it's an interesting look at the process to get a bipartisan bill through with lots of amendments and and lots of titles from various committees. And so we're going to cover everything that this bill is looking at and and specifically drilling down on some issues in federal procurement and other issues that are uh, top of mind for GBA member companies. So with that, um, I'll I'll turn it over to Cleet. If you could start us in at the the general overview of, of the China package that's on the floor in the Senate and what we should be paying attention to. Sure. Well, thanks a lot, Kevin. And uh, I think, as you alluded to, uh, this is a process that's been going on um, for the last couple couple months now that there has been a lot of back and forth uh, and attempts to, to craft a bipartisan package um, that reflects some of the priorities of the Democrats and Republicans on, on a broad range of, of China issues, and in particular, strengthening the United States in its competition uh, with China and a lot of critical technologies. So th- there's been some um, you know, recent developments, and, and we did have yesterday uh, the finance committee package that was ended, added to this bill. And as, and as a result, what you have here now is, is provisions from eight different committees in the Senate that all come together uh, to make up this legislation. And I will just briefly touch on, on some of the high points and some of the work uh, that has gotten the most attention and is also the most significant. Uh, the first thing I, I'd mention is the emergency appropriations that are included in this bill, uh, both for semiconductors and for 5G. And um, what they're doing is, is, is putting forward you know, $52 billion um, for the semiconductor industry to implement um, what was called the Chips for America Act. And really the, the, the core of this is trying to get more semiconductor production and in particular, more foundries uh, back into the United States. And it creates a, a large program at Commerce to try to do that. Um, it also uh, provides money for the USA Telecommunications Act, which is another program at Commerce uh, intended to help um, the US in, in, in what the government characterizes as the race for 5G um, against China. Uh, so that's the appropriations piece. Another highlight that you, I'm sure people have heard a lot talked about and used to be the name of the whole bill um, is the Endless Frontier Act. And the Endless Frontier Act is the piece that comes from the Commerce Committee that really focuses on bolstering uh, the National Science Foundation as well as the Department of Energy and their labs and, and really trying to improve uh, research and development in, in, in 10 technologies that are identified as critical for the future. And um, these are things like artificial intelligence, uh, um, quantum computing, um, biotechnology and synthetic biology and a a whole range of other um, different different sectors. And that's uh, one of the key pieces of this as well is is creating new programs and a new directorate uh, through the National Science Foundation to to focus on those technologies. You know, another piece. that's got a lot of attention is sort of the foreign policy piece, which is called the Strategic Competition Act. 
that looks at all different ways for the U.S. to work better with with allies um, in, in both economic and on you know foreign policy issues. You've got provisions um, from the Homeland Security Committee that that deal with um, by American and by America, and, and we can talk about those in, in, in greater depth. Um, and then you've also got stuff mm-hmm. from the Banking Committee, from the Finance Committee, uh, Education, and, and the Judiciary. So it's a it's a really big bill. Um, those are what some of the, the highlights are. Um, you know, I think there's also been a lot of attention, like I said, on the finance piece in in, in recent days. Yep. Thanks for that, Cleet. So obviously a lot of moving parts there. Brian, I would just ask you, you know, as this thing has been moving forward, we thought it would have been passed by now, frankly, in the Senate. That was the original idea. Uh, but of course, best laid plans sometimes do go awry. And as we're recording this, it looks like they're going to be punting the the uh, final vote on this until after the Memorial Day recess. So what's going on? Yeah, well, thanks, Kevin. And uh, I would just say for, for those who are Senate veterans like myself, old graybeards, it's actually wonderful to see the Senate operating the way the Senate is supposed to operate. And what I mean by that is for, for the last several years, there really hasn't been an open amendment process on an amendable vehicle like this on the Senate floor. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't mean that as a partisan statement, it's just a, a statement of fact. Uh, and uh, Leader Schumer had promised that he would have an open amendment process, and, and I think he has. Uh, and I think the Senate is, again, acting exactly as the Senate acts. And so what do I mean by that? Let me, let me explain. Uh, I think there's a sometimes a misconception uh, between the House and the Senate uh, in terms of how the two operate. In the House, the leadership controls voting and the schedule and all that. Mm-hmm. In the Senate, the Senate operates by consent. So there are only two ways actually to have a vote in the Senate. It's not that a senator raises his or her hand and says, uh, I call for a vote, and then we have a vote. That's not how it works. The way it works is either all 100 senators agree we're going to have a vote at, on this particular thing at this particular time, or a cloture petition is filed. And that's a very long, involved process. It's, it's You file the petition, you have to spend two days, and then 30 hours of, on the Senate floor for each measure that you're seeking a vote on. So that could potentially be every amendment. So as a general matter, the Senate votes only by unanimous consent. I tell you that whole background because... My House colleagues, like Cleet and others, when they were asking me, "Okay, what's happening in the Senate? What what amendments going to going to be next?" I would say, "I don't know. It depends <laughs> on, on the negotiation between Leader Schumer and Leader McConnell." And they'd say, "Well, but you know, but when when is that going to happen?" Like, I don't know. Depends how the negotiation goes, because both Leader Schumer and Leader McConnell are going to have priorities they want to vote on. Both are going to have things that they want to vote on because they think. It's either substantively important for somebody on their side, or they think that the other side is politically vulnerable on something that they want to force a vote on so that their endangered members would have to then go on record that could be used against them in the next election. And they're both parties have uh, 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 priorities in both of those buckets that they're going to want the other. And it's a negotiation between them of like which actually ends up getting a vote. And it's impossible to know truly, even when you are up there, and I remember this, being up in the Senate, even when you're in the middle of it, honestly, even when you're the committee managing the bill, sometimes it's hard to really know where things are gonna shake out because it's just a function of the leverage and the power and the priorities between the two leaders. So in that regard, uh, 
it was surprising, honestly, that the Finance Committee title got into the bill. As we all know, uh, Leader Schumer had had nixed it uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so it seemed pretty clear, like, oh, well, it's dead. But Senator Craper submitted it as an amendment. And then he used his leverage by saying, I'm going to vote against cloture and I'm going to whip all of my Republican colleagues to vote against cloture unless I get a vote on my amendment. And it turns mm -hmm. out Peter Schumer looked at that and said, oh, my God, I don't have the votes for cloture. I need to give Mike Crapo his vote. And so I, this is my lesson on how the Senate works. And so you now have Leader Schumer with this open amendment process. Uh, he says he's had more votes uh, on, uh, than we've had in, in years, honestly, on this, on this bill. Uh, there are some Republicans who have complimented him on his open process and some mm -hmm. who have complained and said, yes, we've had some amendments, but we need more. I would say that also is Senate standard operating procedure. No matter how many amendment votes there are, the minority is always going to complain that it wants more votes. And ultimately, the way these measures end up concluding is that the leader files cloture, cloture is achieved, they vote on the final amendments and they get out of here. Usually they back them up to a holiday or a recess like today. So you, like you said, Kevin, I think many of us thought this would be concluded by today. But what ended up happening is that there were enough Republicans yesterday who were uh, upset about the size of the package and other measures and certain other votes that had yet to happen that the leader was unable to complete the process on the bill uh, before getting out of town today, because he also had some other things he wanted to vote on. The, um, mm. the of course, the commission, the, the January 6th commission, he wanted to do that right. before heading out for the recess, and there just wasn't enough time. It doesn't mean that he didn't necessarily have the votes. It's just that there were certain Republicans who who felt very strongly that this, this I think they call it a giveaway. It's it's a big bloated bill. It's a big giveaway, and they don't they oppose it. And they were able to push the, the vote off so that now mm -hmm. we are in a circumstance where we're in recess and we're going to we have a couple votes when we come back after the recess, most prominently uh, on Senator Corden's amendment to strip the Davis Bacon language that requires payment of the prevailing wage for the CHIPS Act provisions. Uh, that's mm -hmm. very controversial in Republican circles, not because these chips companies don't already pay prevailing wages. But because the many Republicans like Senator Corden object to what they see as an expansion of this pro-labor measure applying not to federal jobs specifically, but to jobs supported by federal money, which they think is, a, is an unhelpful precedent. And so they're going to try to strip that out. And then there's a few more procedural votes. There's a budget point of order. At the end of the day, I, I do expect this bill to get the 60 votes that it's going to need to pass. Um, as Cleet said, there are uh, a bunch of committees, uh, eight committees that have their product in here. And, and what he, he said, but I want to emphasize is those are bipartisan uh, committee products. So there are a mm -hmm. lot of Republicans, including Todd Young, who's the leader really of this whole effort with the Embassy Frontier Act initially. Uh, these, are, these are bipartisan products with plenty of Republican buy-in and Republican priorities. So I, I think, I'm a, if I'm a betting person, I think we do get the 60 votes. Then, of course, we have to do something with respect to the House. And just two points there I would note. The first is I believe one of the reasons Leader Schumer did not want the Finance Committee title to be added to this product 
is that it makes this a blue slip item. What do I mean by that? Well, under the Constitution, revenue measures have to originate in the House of Representatives. So if you're changing the tax code, if you're changing a tariff, that sort of thing has to start in the House or it's unconstitutional. The, the, the Finance Committee title, of course, changes tariffs on a whole variety of things with the miscellaneous tariff bill. So it is effectively a dead letter in the House. The House will submit what's called a blue slip, and it, it just can't go beyond in the House unless the, the leader wants it or the, the speaker wants to go. And, and typically, they don't allow blue slip items to go. Mm -hmm. So uh, th this bill, as it stands, it's, it, the House is not going to take it up and work on it. The House is going to have to develop its own package. And candidly, they are way slower moving on this. They, they don't have anything like the process that we saw in the Senate with these, these committees, these eight committees who all worked on their bipartisan products over the course of many months. You do have some little glimmers of activity. The House Science Committee passed something that has um, something that's somewhat reflective of the Endless Frontiers Act. But it's worth noting that the actual Endless Frontiers Act, as it was initially introduced in the Senate had a counterpart and has a counterpart in the House led by Ro Khanna. Uh, but that's not the bill that's moving in the House to address the same issues. It's a House Science Committee process. Just the other day, Greg Meeks, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, introduced his, I guess, contribution to this China bill related enterprise called the Eagle Act, which in some ways is, is their counterpart to the Strategic Competition Act that came out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that, that Cleet had mentioned. So we do see little glimmers and little spots of activity on China in the House, but so far there is no leadership-driven effort as there was in the Senate by Leader Schumer to develop a wholesale package. Many of the same committees that were very active on the, the Senate side heretofore haven't really done a ton of activity, I'd say, Ways and means most prominently, the last I checked, maybe a week or two ago, they hadn't really done anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the House leadership perspective, uh, I, I remember asking a House leadership, uh, a member of, of House leadership, member of Congress, uh, about the, the Senate process on China. And this this leader said, oh, yes, I do understand the Senate is doing process. That's very interesting. You know, sort of a, <laughs> you know, kind of like, like, yeah, you know, like just had not a ton of interest in it. And the last thing I'll say is my, my understanding is that the speaker is not a fan of the, the, the uh, approach that the Senate has taken on some of these Endless Frontier, Frontier Act proposals. So I say all that to say whatever happens with the Senate bill, and again, I expect it to pass in early June, I think it is on a very slow boat uh, to any kind of final passage. The House, I don't really anticipate any uh, really aggressive activity until the fall at the earliest. The House is gonna focus on infrastructure, I believe, for the for the foreseeable future here. And uh, that'll probably get us through the August recess. Maybe we turn to China in the fall, who knows? Uh, it's a little unpredictable from here on out. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. And it is a, an interesting uh, approach in the Senate because usually when you would see this kind of massive effort, there would be a lot of cross-coordination between the corresponding committees in the House, Senate Finance, we work on Ways and Means and so forth, so forth. And we just haven't gotten that, as you've mentioned. And and the Crapo Amendment points that you, you raised, I would just highlight, you know, you, you mentioned the blue slip process and the fact that it includes a miscellaneous tariff bill. It also includes uh, reauthorizing general system of preferences so that there is a lot of tariff work there. Um, a lot of focus for GBA in this particular package has been on some, what 
I, I would consider to be almost unrelated China um, provisions that have been included on Buy America and Buy American expansions. And Cle you mentioned those a little bit earlier. Can you uh, just give us a little bit more background on what's in the bill and, and your thoughts there? Sure. Um, and I, I, I enjoyed Brian's presentation. I, th I think every time he talks about Senate process, I learn a little bit more. Um, but I think, as he mentioned, you know, it, it, it's unusual that they're actually doing this process. And so that's why I think a lot of us are, are sort of experiencing this in, in detail for the, for the first time. Um, so one area, of course, that, 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 that you mentioned that's important is, is you know, the HISGAC Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee piece. And, you know, th their piece had had range of things in it. It had stuff on cyber and other issues. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, the Buy America and Buy American stuff, I think, is is something um, you know, the GBA members are, are, are very interested in. And, you know, what you have here is sort of a, a hodgepodge of um, codifying some of the stuff that President Biden has already proposed in his executive orders. And, for example, um, you know, tucked in this legislation are provisions, um, you know, to create the buyamerican.gov um, website where, you know, all waiver requests and the way that they're dispensed of would be would be made public. Um, that's something that, that President Biden has already, you know, talked about and proposed. Um, there is discussion of creating, um, you know, the new position in OMB, and, and, you know, in the White House, um, you know, who's going to be focused on administering this and really, you know, increasing the, um, you know, the scrutiny of, of any waiver. So you really have this notion that that Congress is on board uh, with the administration in terms of making any waivers of, of, of Buy America more more difficult. Um, the other piece um, that is that is getting a lot of attention is um, you know something uh, that that is called the Build America Buy America Act, and this applies um, to you know federal programs that provide grants uh, for the construction of infrastructure projects. And and basically, you know what this bill does and what it says is that 180 days after enactment, so we don't know exactly when enactment's going to be at this point. This could be a, a ways off. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the head of each agency um, is is supposed to make sure uh, that none of the funds uh, available for infrastructure, you know, can be spent unless all of the iron, steel, manufactured products, and construction materials are, are produced in the United States. And, you know, there are already requirements um, that, you know, 95 percent of the iron and steel for these kinds of programs um, should be made in the United States. And this would obviously increase that. But the manufactured products and the construction materials um, would, would increase it significantly more than, than where it is today. And that's where I think there's a, a lot of concern um, um, about, you know, what the implication will be of this, especially uh, when you couple that with the fact that that waivers um, are, you know, the administration is signaling and Congress is signaling that waivers are going to be granted in, 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 in less circumstances. Now, there are still waiver provisions in the bill uh, for some of these new requirements. Um, so theoretically, they could be they could be granted. But another change here is that these waivers would automatically sunset uh, in two years after, after they are granted. So you have, again, a significant expansion here for infrastructure which could be very significant when you know, the Biden administration and the Democratic Congress is, is, is pushing forward on, on plans for large infrastructure spending. And then you have more scrutiny of any waivers and you have a process whereby which those waivers would sunset. 
So that's that's where they are today. But I think as 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 we've alluded to, this is far from being passed into law. This is a fluid process, not only in the Senate, but also with respect to what the House is going to take up. Um, so you know, it's there's there's still a way from from here to there. But I do think you know, buy America, buy American, being tough on China. You know, those are all really popular things. Um, so I think something will you know, eventually uh, have a chance of, of getting in there. We don't know yet what the House wants to do, but I think they have a chance. Now, one other interesting process point I'll make here um, is that, you know, as I mentioned, I think a lot of folks feel like this is a very significant expansion and something that, that probably needs to be considered and studied a little bit more to figure out, you know, what the cost is going to be of, of implementing this. Um, you know, I was talking to some of the staffers you know, working on these these issues in the Senate, and and they had said that they actually expected that this would get um, watered down a little bit more than it has as it worked its way through the process. And I think you had a situation where so much was going on, people were so focused on so many different issues that this didn't quite get the sufficient attention that it might deserve. You know, either from the committee of jurisdiction or from senators on the floor. Um, but I think what that tells you is that it, as as this whole package presumably moves you know, into the House or, or the House starts its own process with a similar package, um, that this is an area where there, there could be some, some, some changes that are, that are considered uh, just you know, so as people get their hands around what, what the scope of this really is. Yeah, and just, yeah. Just, just a quick note on that, Kevin. I mean, the, the way that would happen, right, is, uh, look, there's two ways that bills become law. One chamber passes it, and they passes it over to another chamber, and they sort of ping pong back and forth until they both end up passing the same thing. Or you each chamber passes its its own version, and then you conference it. Uh, conferences are much less common today than they had been historically, uh, but truly, conferences where this kind of a measure typically would be addressed because it's mm -hmm. in the conference when you've got the leaders of the committees who really have the broad perspective to understand what the policy means and how it's going to actually play out in practice. And they can smooth out the rough edges of this sort of thing. So that's really, I think, what you could you, you can hope for in this kind of a process is that you'll have that sort of broader perspective policy overlay that will will lead to something more reasonable or workable. Yeah, thank you for that, Brian. I, I think you're 100% right on that. And I mean, we've seen it before in previous NDAAs, which pass every year and often go to conference, so one of the last traditional bills, but they they have domestic procurement um, requirements that are often included in those that, that are dealt with in conference one way or another. And um, Certainly, it seems like there, there's a lot of work for GBA to be doing in this space. Uh, GBA obviously has been um, very focused on procurement issues, specifically making sure that, um, you know, uh, international-based companies don't get locked in um, based on just the title by America, uh, which are actually a set of, um, you know, procurement policies that are supposed to apply to specific items and not companies, but there is loose rhetoric out there as well. And then obviously uh, as well, defending the, the Trade Agreements Act and and uh, and so forth. So uh, we're going to continue working this issue. We had a recent meeting in our supply chain working group where we discussed our path forward and we're setting up a series of meetings with members in the House of uh, both the Transportation Infrastructure Committee and the Armed Services Committee. And that there will be some meeting opportunities there for anybody who's listening who's a member of the supply chain working group. And if you're interested in domestic procurement issues and you're not a member of the supply chain working group, I encourage you to sign up and, and uh, join the cause. So uh, a lot going on. I want to thank Brian and Cleet, both of you, for being with us this month. Appreciate the insight and talk soon. Thanks, everyone. Take care.